Good morning, and happy Easter to y'all. It's estimated that two billion people today, or put another way, one out of every three human beings on planet Earth, are celebrating Easter Sunday this morning. The question is, how do we go from celebrating Easter Sunday to being impacted by Easter Sunday? That's a question I want to try to answer for you this morning. The, The last six weeks at our church, we've been in a series that we've called The Veil, And we're asking the question, going beyond the Easter story, Lord, take us beyond the story of Easter to the significance of Easter and how that has the capacity to change our lives. And here's my goal for every person who's sitting here today, every person who will watch through the internet eventually. My goal today is that today's service will impact you more radically than any church service or religious service that you have ever sat in in your life as you hear the significance spiritually of Easter for you and you take it to heart and apply it to your life. If you have your Bibles today, we're in Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. It'll be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to ask you to take your bulletin and kind of tear it in half. There's a, uh, some sermon notes that you can follow along with. We should have gave you a pen when you came in for those of you who like to learn and kind of take notes and write things down. Even those of you who like just, just like to keep track so you know when we're almost done. These notes will help you do that so you know when we're coming to the end today. But we're in Matthew chapter 27. And Matthew was written by a disciple by the name of Matthew who lived in a town called Capernaum where Jesus based his ministry out of. And Matthew in this town of Capernaum, it was his job to collect the taxes of the Israeli people and to give them to the Romans. So he wasn't a very popular figure in this town. And when Jesus first met Matthew, he said, hey, let's hang out and have lunch. He went over to his house for lunch. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus was chastised by the religious people for hanging out with Matthew. And they said, man, you eat, you eat with the wrong kind of people. And Jesus said, listen, it's people like this who need me. You religious people who don't think you need anything spiritually, kind of go do your own thing. I've come for people like Matthew. A few years later, Matthew would be so impacted by his encounters with Jesus that he would be one of four men to write down the story of the life of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 27, he gives us the events on the day Jesus died as he remembered them and he would have been there. So in Matthew chapter 27, we're actually backing up two days in history. We're going back to the day Jesus died on the cross, the day we celebrate his Good Friday. And in verses 33 through 54, we read the story of Jesus' death on the cross as told to us by his friend Matthew. And here's what Matthew said. They came to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. Now, two years ago, I was in Israel, and I took this picture where Jesus was crucified. Right above this is where they believe Jesus was crucified. So you can imagine why they called it Golgotha, or the place of the skull. Verse 34, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. It was kind of a basically Tylenol. That was medicine for him. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down They kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. 
Now from noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The key to this entire text is found in verses 50 and 51. I've placed them on your sermon notes in the New King James Version, a little more formal translation of what we read in the original Greek language. And it basically says this, at the moment that Jesus died, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Then, circle the word then on your sermon notes, because it literally means at the exact same time. So this is the very first thing that happened after Jesus died. Then, behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, I believe these two verses, Matthew 27, 50 and 51, outside of the empty tomb and perhaps standing side by side with the empty tomb, these two verses are the most important verses in the entire Bible because it was at this moment that all of humanity was given direct access to God, an access that they had not had for more than 4,000 years. When Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple that separated humanity from God was torn, as it, was, it was as if God gave an open invitation for anyone who would ever live to come in and be close to him. And that's today's key. We'll start with the key, we'll end with the key, but here's the key of our Easter today. Our access to God, which we are granted will always result in action from God in our lives if we step into it. So the reality of Easter Sunday today, according to Matthew 27, 50 and 51, is that Jesus has died, the veil has been torn, you now have the access to be as close to God as you want to be, and if you step into that access, God will do something crazy radical in your life to change your life. But the decision is now yours. Jesus has not just unlocked the door. He's not just opened the door. He's kicked the door off the hinges and said, you can be close to God if you desire to be close to God. And the reality is most people want to feel closer to God. They just don't know how. And for 4,000 years, people were not able to be close to God. If I could take you back to Genesis 1, and you don't have to turn there, but it says that God created the earth and he created Adam and Eve, and God was a God who was in their midst and they were together But in their disobedience, they basically, God said, you got to live this way to be close to me. They sinned. We think about the serpent and we think about the apple. We think about the forbidden fruit. But what we don't realize is when that happened, a barrier was put between humanity and God. In Genesis 3, 23 and 24, as a result of Adam and Eve disobeying God, it says that God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, those are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life basically gave you eternal life. God's presence was in the Garden of Eden, and basically for 4,000 years there was a wall of separation between humanity and God's presence in eternal life. You see, God created people to be with him and to live forever. 
But when that wall of separation came in for 4,000 years, people said, I'd like to be close to God. I don't think I can. I'd like to live forever. Clearly, that isn't a possibility. And this barrier was put up in the Garden of Eden. As people learned to worship God, God taught them how to design and make the tabernacle. And there was a barrier in the tabernacle between God and the people. Later, Solomon would build a temple. And even in the temple of Solomon, there was a barrier between God and the people. And access to God was covered by what the New King James Version very simply calls the veil. They say, Christian, what is the veil? And what's the big deal about the veil being torn? Because it was God's idea to put it up and God's idea to take it down. In Exodus chapter 26, when God was teaching Moses how to make the first ever place of worship, God said, I'm going to go ahead and give you my presence so that you know how to worship me and be close to me, but you can't be in direct access with me. And here's what God told him to do in Exodus 26. He said, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim. Again, those are angels. Woven into it by a skilled worker, hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases, and hang the curtain from the clasp and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain, and the curtain will separate the holy place where you learn about God from the most holy place where God is. Now, what was the veil? The veil was a curtain, a beautiful curtain that served as the backdrop of the daily spiritual tasks. So anytime anyone went in to try to do any kind of ministry, they were looking at this veil and they were, they were reminding themselves, I'd like to be closer to God, but, but I can't. This veil was an ever-present reminder of the separation between a holy God and a sinful people. I want to know about God, I'd like to be close to God, but I can't. That thing is standing in the way, and we look at that and say, why would God do that? That doesn't seem fair, but we have to remember that the veil served to protect the people from God, not punish them on God's behalf, as it kept the power and perfection of God away from a weak and a sinful people who didn't approach, approach God the correct way. Now, Indiana Jones and his friends found out about this the hard way. When they approached the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, like directly, remember? Like they went in and this, this was not good for those guys there because they did not have a veil to protect them and all the Nazis were killed by the presence of God in, in that movie. But the veil protected the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Exodus 25 says the Ark of the Covenant is where God's presence dwelt in the midst of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was where symbolically God was, and if you wanted to be close to God, you had to be close to the Ark. There was only one problem. You weren't allowed. It was this presence of God that when Jesus died, died, God said, you can have access to. And it wasn't just symbolic. It was real. When Jesus died, God said, you can have as much access to me as you want to have. And when we learn about the Ark of the Covenant and we learn about real access to God and the real presence of God, we learned this Ark of the Covenant Ark of the Covenant was comprised of and contained specific things. It was comprised of a mercy seat, which I'm going to teach you about. It was comprised of an atonement cover. That was the lid. The mercy seat was on top of the lid. And then inside it, it had the tablets of the Ten Commandments. You remember when Charleston Heston came down the mountain and threw those down as he portrayed Moses? That happened in real life with Moses first. It had a jar of manna, which was a big pottery jar filled with this seed-like stuff that God fed the people of Israel with. And it had Aaron's staff. And basically, when the veil was torn, God said, you have access to these five things. Now, you and I have celebrated Easter, probably many of us, most of our life. Somebody told me we had the Easter bunny out front shaking hands. I didn't see the Easter bunny, but I've been looking for Easter eggs my entire life and getting Easter baskets. And I've celebrated Easter. 
But often we forget that Easter is the reality that God said you can now come back behind the curtain. You can come back behind the veil. And when you do, this is what happens in your life. Remember today's key. Access to God, living behind the veil, results in action from God. If we can go behind the veil and understand what that means. So today, I want to take you behind the veil. I want to be like Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man and whoever else she hung out with, the, the midgets, and there was another one of them in there, right? The straw guy, the scarecrow. Yeah, I want, I want to be like Dorothy and those guys. And I want to see behind the curtain today. I don't want to look at the big green head. I want to see behind the curtain. And on Easter, God invites us behind the curtain into his presence. And what we find out about living behind the curtain is it's just radical. The first thing we learn about is the mercy seat. And here's the first thing that you need to know. The first thing God wants to greet you with this Easter Sunday as you step into his presence is his mercy. God shakes our hands with mercy the first time he meets us. Now, mercy, the definition of mercy is undeserved favor. Is someone doing you a favor that you don't deserve? And we see in God an attitude of mercy. when, When we look at mercy as an attitude, here's what that means. It means God's heart is soft towards you. Like God's default is merciful. He looks at you and his heart is soft towards you. God does not have a hard heart towards you. And maybe some of you, the one thing you need to hear today is that God likes you, that God loves you, that God's not angry with you, that God's not disappointed with you, that God's not hard-hearted towards you. God has an attitude of mercy, which means God's heart is always soft towards you. But he also has mercy as an action. What does that mean? That means that God does us the favor It's undeserved, but he does us the favor of allowing us to be close to him and allowing us to have eternal life, which we lost in the Garden of Eden, even though our lives don't deserve it. So you say, well, God's mercy means he just doesn't care. No, his mercy means that his undeserved favor has come to you. But before we get into that ark, we go to the mercy seat that existed above the ark. We we have to lift the lid, and the lid was called the atonement cover. Now, the word atonement literally means to cover. So it was not just an atonement cover. The word atonement means to cover. Now let me tell you what that means. On Sundays when I teach our Bible studies, I teach off an iPad. And two weeks ago, somebody bumped it on the way up between services. And I came up to preach and it was just shattered. Just glass all over my Bible, glass all over my iPad. And I got one of the guys on our team because I was traveling to Indiana to do some speaking that week. And I said, hey, you got like, to help me fix this. And he grabbed it and he said, I'll take it in. And he did some work and he said, a new one's 500 bucks. Um, I think I can get this one repaired for 250. What do you want to do? I said, whatever's cheapest. And he said, well, do you have Apple care on it, which is an insurance coverage thing? Um, And I said, I have no idea. I think Danielle bought it for me. You can ask him. So he takes it in and I'm traveling uh, that day. And he texted me and he said, hey, guess what? You have 10 days left on your coverage. They can fix you and get, they, they can give you a brand new one for $49 it's covered. Now, I don't know about you, but I like when I break something that's beyond repair and it's covered and it doesn't cost me anything. I like when insurance covers my car. I like when insurance covers my home in a hailstorm. I like when my health insurance covers me when my kids are sick. This is the thought of covering, that the mistakes you've made, the things you've broken in life, the marriages you've broken, the kids that maybe you've broken, the, the spouse that has broken you, all that's covered. All that's taken care of. God will put that on his tab. Covered, it's also easy to see covered in the antonym. An antonym is the opposite of a word. The antonym of cover would be to expose. So when you go to a Christian counselor and you kind of 
tell them your deepest, darkest secrets. It's his job to cover those, to be confidential in those. And what we learn is that God, because he's a great God, God doesn't want to expose your past. God doesn't want to punish you and make you pay for your past. God wants to cover it and allow you to have a new future. So as you step behind the veil, the first thing you're greeted with is mercy. The second thing you're greeted with is the thought that everything you've done is covered. God doesn't want to expose anything. God doesn't want to punish anything. He just wants to try to figure out how to be close to you. And as we step into God's presence behind the veil, mercy and atonement allow us to be close to him. But God wants us to remain close to him. That's why when we open the lid of the ark behind the veil... We learn how to be close to God and stay close to God in a way that allows our life to radically change. And that's what I want to look at with you today, the contents of the ark. Because when you open the ark, there wasn't gold, there wasn't silver. When you open the ark, Scripture says real clearly in Hebrews 9, 3, and 4, here's what was in there. The author of Hebrews said, behind the second curtain, that's the veil, there was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense, And the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, the Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So in this little cutaway picture, you can kind of see how these might have rested in this great golden Ark. But as we look at them, these tell us how to stay close to God once we have got close to God. And here's what we learn. We learn that the tablets of the Ten Commandments were in there, which reminds us that God cares about the spiritual direction of our life. And he cares about us knowing how to live close to him. Now, some of you today, this is your very first time here. And some of you, like my family on the front row, you travel from a long way. They travel from just south of Chicago to be here today. And most of you, like me, at some point went someplace you didn't know how to go. And when you pull up the little GPS or Siri on your phone, when you need directions, what's the first thing that you enter into the thing that you're asking for directions? The destination. You see, direction has to be determined by the destination. And what God is doing for us is God is giving us the destination first. Most of us want to end our life close to God, knowing God, with eternal life from God. Most of us know the destination, but we really don't care about the directions. And I can't imagine that any of us would set off on a journey knowing exactly where we want to end up, but not care how we're going to get there. And the tablets of the covenant remind us That if we want to get to the destination, there are directions to get there. The tablets, which eventually became the the full counsel of God's word, help us know how to be close to God, stay close to God, end up with God on the other side of this world. Then there was this jar of manna, which is interesting because it shows us when we live behind the veil, when we live in God's presence, he desires to give us the spiritual provision that we need in life. But this, I found this funny as I was looking at this this week. Manna was the bread from heaven, just appeared every morning. It's something God sent down. You say, well, God can't just make food out of the ground. Listen, go plant an ear of corn or a, a seed of corn and just see if food comes up from the ground. God can actually create food out of the ground. Manna was something that the Israelites ate every day for 40 days in the wilderness. But I just learned this week the definition of the word manna, the definition of it is, what is it? That's the definition of manna. Manna means, what is it? Because when the people of Israel came out, they were hungry, and they wanted something to eat, and it came on the ground, and they asked Moses. Moses said, there, eat it. And they said, well, what is it? And I think manna said, I think Moses said, I I don't know, 
just, just eat it. You know, the, um, about two weeks ago, I was eating with one of my pastor friends at a little breakfast place in Overland Park. Um, and he, he, like me, was, rain, was raised more redneck than refined. So we're, you know, we're sitting at the table, and the waitress comes up, and he's looking at the menu. Um, and he asked her, she said, have you guys decided what you want? And he says, what is the, um, what, what's the, the quinoa? And she said, do you mean the quinoa? And he was like, yeah. And she said, I can't explain it, but it's good. It's like this rice or pastas. I can't explain it, but it's good. And, you know, he, he kind of flashed into his dumb and dumber, and he's like, mm, I'll have that. Like, you know, it's just like we're, we're that kind of friendship thing going on. So we both got the quinoa, the, the quinoa, and we ate it. And it wasn't bad. I don't know that I'll order it again, but it wasn't bad. But what's funny is most of us, when we hear that God's going to provide for our needs, before we, before we allow God to provide for our needs, we're just like the Israelites. We'll say, well, what, it, what is God going to provide for me? How is God going to provide for me? And instead of just stepping into trust with God, we have to ask all our questions first. If the Israelites would have never had their question answered, they would have starved. They had to add faith to their walk to see God's provision become real for them. A lot of times God speaks to your heart, just step out and I'll provide. And our first question is, well, how? What is the provision? God, how will you ever fix my broken heart? God, how will you ever help me with my finance problem? God, how will you ever allow my kids to get out of the jam that they're in? God, how will you ever allow me to find the job that I want? What is it? And God says, you're going to have to trust me on this one. Just step behind the veil and stay there. Trust me, because spiritual provision often follows spiritual trust. And this is where God says, hey, I've got something for you. And we respond, well, what is it? And God says, just trust me and try it out. I promise you that I won't let you down. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. Say, Christian, how? I don't know. But this is where faith comes in. I don't know how God will meet your needs as you get close to him. I just believe that he will if you will step behind the veil and believe to, to live life behind the veil. And then there was inside the ark the staff of Aaron which reminds us that God gives us spiritual power for life. And this staff of Aaron is a great spiritual illustration in itself because the question that this staff answered over and over and over again, starting with Moses and then Pharaoh and then the leaders of Israel, the question that was always answered is, how do we know if God is really with anyone? How do we know if God is real? How do we know if God helps? How do I know that God can help me? Moses stood before the burning bush and God said, go, I'll be with you. Moses said, how do I know that you'll be with me? He threw a staff on the ground, it became a snake, he picked it up and he's like, that's crazy. So then he went to talk to the elders of Israel and he gave Aaron his staff. Aaron was his spokesman. And the elders said, how do we know God will be with us? And he threw the staff down, he did the snake thing again. Then he went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, well, how do I know God is with you? And he did the staff thing again. And God said, keep that staff so that you'll always remember and be able to prove that I'm with you. You know, the answer to this question, how do we know if God is with anyone, access to God always results in action from God. And I don't know what's going to happen to the staff that you throw down and say, all right, God, help me. I just know access to God always results in action from God. Jesus said it this way in Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But he said, just stay here and stay close to me and stay in prayer. You know, the reality of our life is it would be nice if we could diet for one day and get to our goal weight. It would be nice if we could get one paycheck that would cover us for life. And a lot of people call that the lottery, and they work very, very hard on that, and they try to do that. 
It would be nice if we could fill up with gas once and never have to fill up again. And it would be nice if we could say one prayer and never need anything else spiritually. But the Bible says it just doesn't work like that. You see, access to God needs to be continual access to God. It's that continual access that leads to powerful actions. You know, my little girl Casey is 10, and she's the sentimental one of our children. And at some point on almost every vacation that we've taken, whether it's to Branson hanging out at Silver Dollar City, or whether it's hanging out on the beach somewhere, or whether it's in the mountains of Colorado, at some point Casey will always say, because she kind of thinks she lives in a Disney movie, and you know, she, in her head, I swear she hears the music begin to play as Jamie gets ready to, to play uh, here on the keyboard behind me. But at some point of every vacation, Casey will at some point cuddle up to me and say, Man, don't you just wish we could stay here forever, Dad? Don't you just wish we could stay here forever? The spiritual thought behind the veil is you have to stay there. And a lot of people, these friends are getting ready to come share their story with you. But a lot of people step behind the veil. We look behind the veil. A lot of people pray a prayer. A lot of people decide they'd like to be close to God. But the difference between people who have experienced powerful action from God rather than just a little religious thing here and there are people who have decided to just stay behind the veil forever. Wouldn't it be great if we could just stay here, Dad? You see, the reality is we have to live behind the veil, not just visit from time to time. I mean, if you really want God's power, you can't just stop by once a year on Easter. If you really want God's power, you really probably can't even just stop by once a month. If you really want God's power... You have to live behind the veil. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul said to the church in Corinth, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, though things are going bad on the outside, inwardly we're being renewed. He doesn't say every Easter. He doesn't say every Christmas. He doesn't say every Sunday. He says day by day. On the outside, my world is falling apart. But every day I step behind the veil. And it's like God gives me enough for that day. Christianity, as we look at it in Scripture, is a lifetime commitment, not a one-time decision. But it's a commitment that radically changes your life if it's something you want to become, not just something that you want to believe or something that you want to pray. And I've invited some of my friends at the church to come up and show you what living behind the veil looks like to them. And all of us, beginning with me, have kind of a before and after story of what it looked like to be distant from God and what it looks like to be close to God in our life. On October 23rd, 2009, I was sitting in the basement of a church in Seoul, South Korea, and God spoke to my heart that I needed to to start a church that would see people far from God become passionate Christians who made a difference in the world. And at that point, I knew who God was. At that point, I knew what was behind the veil. But at that point, I did not live behind the veil. And as I started asking God, God, how how do I do this? God, how does it happen? I felt like God said, Christian, if you want power from me, you have to be close to me. And I look at my life then in 2009 versus what it is now is, is God has helped me get close to him and stay close to him. And the people who are going to share with you, we all have what's called a chalkboard testimony. We've just got to try to summarize our life before we step behind the veil and saw Jesus do a great work in it. And dad, my chalkboard's actually right beside you there. I know you weren't planning on doing this, but if you could hand that to me. You know, if we were in a group meeting today, 
I'd have to say that in 2009, when God told me what he wanted me to do, I was afraid. I just thought, God, I can't do this. I was really afraid that God wouldn't be there for me. I was afraid that if I made a big spiritual commitment that either I couldn't come through or God wouldn't come through. And I just, I was scared. I was scared of what I knew God wanted me to do. I felt alone. That time, I didn't feel like I had a friend in the world. I knew the friends I did have, I was going to leave to start something new and it was going to be a difficult process. I just said, God, how are you going to help me? And I was really prepared to fail. I'd gone through so much bad stuff that had worked out wrong. Like I just, I did, I not only had a glass half full, I had a glass almost empty about everything. And I thought, God, I'll try, but I'm sure, like, I'm sure it's not going to work, but, but I'll try. And as God said, Christian, don't worry about the church, worry about me, just get closer to me. God began to change my heart. And I can stand here three years later and I can say today I'm hopeful. I'm not afraid. I really do believe God has great things for me and my family and my future and our church. I have great friends, the greatest friends that I've ever had in my life that are sitting all over the room. I've traveled all over the world with them, serving orphan girls and pastors and folks in Israel. And instead of feeling like it'll be okay if I fail, I'm driven to impact more people. You see, getting close to God and staying close to God radically changed my life. And so people in our church want to show you what happened to them when they stepped behind the veil. So I want you to kind of open your heart to these friends of mine in our church. Just read their stories and see who they were and who they became as they got real close to God. And think about your own spiritual journey today as they come.
reality is hundreds of you have flipped your board. Life is different and you've become brand new. And that's what we're celebrating today, whether we're celebrating the empty tomb. I took this picture of the empty tomb when I was in Israel two years ago. It's the first place I visit. It's the last place I want to leave. Whether it's cardboard testimonies of people saying, this was me and this is me now. Whether it's baptisms that we do, symbolic that I've died to my old self and I've become a brand new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 rings true. It says, if anyone's in Christ, if anyone lives behind the veil, they're a new creation. The old stuff is gone. The new things have come. But hundreds who are going to be with us today, hundreds of probably millions of the two billion who will celebrate Easter today are still living on the front side of their board. And they don't know that there's hope for tomorrow. And they don't realize that they can turn it over. And they don't realize there's power from being next to God that allows that to happen. And I'm reminded for you today of Acts 17 verses 26 and 27 where the apostle Paul preaching in Athens, Greece said from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the entire earth but he marked out their appointment times in history and the boundaries of their lands God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us you know what the summary of that verse says that God could have created you at any point in history, at any place on the globe, but he created you now and here so that you'd have your best chance to reach out and find him because he's closer to you than you truly believe. Maybe today is your time. Maybe today is your place. Maybe you've known what Easter means, but you've never stepped into God's mercy. You've never accepted God's covering. You've never followed God's direction or embraced God's provision by faith. You've never taken God's power so that the things that have to change, the actions that you beg would occur in your life could occur. And today I want to give you that opportunity. So I'm going to ask today that you would bow your heads, that you would close your eyes all over this room. I truly believe Christianity is a commitment, not just a decision, but it starts with a decision to be committed. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this commitment begins. We call that prayer in our church. We just feel like you can say a prayer. And if the cry of your heart today is for some action in your life from God, if you've been far from God, if you've battled alcohol, if you've battled depression, if you've battled suicidal thoughts, if you've battled being lukewarm, if you've just never come to church, you saw a plethora of people who God has changed radically. I don't know what action you need from God, but I know access to God will grant that if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you've said a prayer, but you've not given him your life in future. Maybe a long time ago you did and you've kind of fallen away, but you want to get re-engaged and recommitted. If that's, if that's the attitude of your heart today, would you just pray this prayer with me? I'm going to say a prayer that you can repeat. You don't even have to say it out loud. You can just pray it in your heart, in your head to God because as Acts 17 says, God is closer than you think and he's listening and he's here. And I believe this decision to make this commitment will radically change your life. If this is your desire today, and you see access from God that gives action from God and you want that and you want to make Jesus your Lord in your future. Would you just pray this in your heart to God today? Thank you.